EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast. My name is Toria Rainey, and I'm a program assistant at BU's Center for the Study of Europe. Today is Wednesday, February 1st, and I'm here with Sofia Perez, Associate Professor and Political Economist, to talk about the emerging future in Europe. Um, so my name is Sofia Perez, and I am a professor of political science here at Boston University. Um, I'm also associated with the Center for the Study of Europe here. Uh, I work mostly on the political economy of uh, the EU and specifically the Eurozone. I teach courses about Europe uh, in many different ways, uh, including very introductory courses, courses about uh, immigration uh, in Europe, and also lately about democracy, the concept of democracy. Um, Now, what other relationship do I have to Europe? Well, um, I am European. I don't sound much like a European because I came to the United States at an early age. My family went back to Spain, which is where I'm originally from, and I uh, stayed on. I did my college studies and then a PhD, and I was recruited into academia. So that's how I, I ended up here. So basically, just to continue a little bit of our explanation about what really the project entails, um, we talk to people about just the future of Europe and kind of in any way that they want to address it. Um, So one thing that I I had heard you'd mentioned was Mm -hmm. um, that you had started teaching courses on democracy. And one thing that we definitely talked a lot about in conceptualizing this this project was um, the notion that Lumen actually asserted that was this unusual keeping open of possibilities of future choice. So mm-hmm. we talked a lot about what kind of role choice plays in the democracy. What would you say about that? Well, t- let me tell you first a little bit about how I ended up teaching a class on um, democracy and what that has to do with Europe. I used to teach uh, an introduction to European politics, and if you do that, you have to talk about political history. And if you look at the political history of Europe, um, modern political history of Europe, it's really about the birth of democracy in some states and its spread uh, subsequently and its repeated breakdown. So when I teach a class on democracy, I actually talk about democracy, its origins, and breakdown. So that sort of gives you a sense of my... Um, sense that democracy isn't something that is ever fully consolidated. We have this idea that countries follow a linear course, that um, you become a democracy, and if you've been a democracy for long enough, you're consolidated, you're there. And European history really teaches us that that is not always the case. And so we have, you know, multiple instances where democracy collapsed. Uh, Spain and and Germany, which is another country I have a family connection to, being two of the prime examples of that. So uh, I started doing this even before we were having some of this debate in the 
United States with the current election. That's really kind of a, a happenstance that I was not foreseeing uh, when I started teaching this class. But one of the things that did um, incentivize me to want to teach a class on the concept of democracy specifically was that in Europe, uh, we've seen a real kind of crisis of democracy uh, that we've seen it more clearly, maybe I should say, at an earlier point in time. And people, in fact, have been talking about the sort of loss of democracy or of real organic democracy in Europe for quite a while. So we have European intellectuals that talk about post-democracy, that we live in an era of post-democracy. And that has been going on that's, you know, a couple of decades old, actually. Uh, so European scholars, European thinkers have been thinking a lot about how democracy, the way we are experiencing it, or the way we have been experiencing it for a while, uh, seems to really uh, create discontent and, and people don't are not convinced that we're really experiencing democracy. And there are a number of reasons for that. But this is a theme that has been around for quite a while. And so then what we had after the economic crisis of 2008, uh, we have had, we've seen the rise of parties that embody that in various different ways in Europe. We tend to think mostly of the parties of the far right, as being an indicator, their success in many European countries as being an indicator that people are unhappy or they don't share fundamental democratic values anymore. But we've also seen it now, you know, now it's called populism. And the reason we call it populism now, as opposed to just far right, is because we now also have instances of what people call far left, although I would probably call it more the new left only because there used to be a far left uh, that was different from what we have today. So we have the, the two um, sort of prime examples of that are the Syriza party in, in Greece and uh, Podemos in, in Spain. What kind of change would you like to see in the current political arrangements in the EU? Do you think that those parties are beneficial? Do you think that they detract from the state of the EU? Well, you're asking me a question that isn't the, the typical question that a political scientist <laughs> thinks about, uh, because we're usually trying to think about what is happening and what is why it is happening and what is likely to happen. Okay, So when you ask a political scientist, trained as myself as an empirical political scientist, what would you like? Uh, I can tell you a lot of things, but that doesn't mean I think those are in the realm of possibility. I think that what we see in Europe now is a tension. We're also seeing it in the United States in a way. Um, a tension between in which people think that there are two possible ways forward, two possible ways to perhaps restore the sense that democracy really does involve um, choice. And one which is the, the way that is perhaps clearer to people or more comprehensible 
is to, to re try to reestablish national power. Okay, so in the EU, for a very long time, we've had a debate about whether the EU, uh, not necessarily the individual member states, but the EU to, to which they belong, is democratic, whether there's a democratic deficit. This was an, a separate debate that has been going on for a long time, and a lot of people now see the EU as really the cause of this post-democracy that others have spoken of, although some of the key thinkers, uh, Chantal Mouffe, sorry, uh, who is coming here actually soon, um, is one of the big European thinkers on this, but there's also a famous political scientist who unfortunately um, died, whose name is Peter Mayer, who spoke about this for a long time. They didn't actually think it, it was because of the EU. They thought there was something intrinsic to having parties of the left converge in their positions towards the right, moving towards what we call the center, but which is ultimately pretty close to the mainstream right, that was the source of all this. Now, this has been turned into this other idea, which I think is a simpler, maybe also a simplistic idea, that the cause of that is the EU. Okay, so there are kind of the two ways in which people think about moving out of this situation, and one of them is to bring, you know, take power away from the EU and restore what people think of as sovereignty at the more local level, at the at the national member state level. Okay, as a way to kind of recapture democracy. Now, the other view is that you can't really go back in history. Okay, you can't go back to the past. And also that it would be very difficult to go back once you have moved forward with integration in the EU. And that part of what is accentuating the sense of um, post-democracy or that there's an absence of democracy in the EU is that the EU has moved forward in one set of ways, and the most important one of those is monetary integration in the countries that have participated in that, in the Eurozone, the ones that have adopted the Euro. But it hasn't moved forward in other ways that usually go hand in hand with that. So if you think about what we um, technicians call currency unions, what does that mean? That means an area that shares a, a currency. Okay, when we think about currency unions, we usually think of nation states. So the United States is a currency union. Okay, the EU, or the Eurozone, I should say, became a currency union, but it didn't do other things that usually help um, fix some of the possible problems that a currency union alone creates. And the problems that a currency union, if you don't have anything else to kind of balance it, to complement it, creates, is that a currency has a value vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And that value is supposed to reflect something about that economy. But there are differences in terms of the economic conditions in the Eurozone. 
and yet we have one single currency. And so normally in a place like the United States, for instance, which may have many other, American capitalism may have other, you know, many problems, uh, but there is a source of solidarity that is the federal budget. Okay? Americans don't like taxes. Uh, they don't like federal taxes or, or state taxes for that matter. But the, you can think of the federal budget as a source of solidarity between the states and the United States. And also um, a mechanism where if the monetary policy, which is the same as the currency policy, um, that is being set, in this case by the European Central Bank, fits what's going on in one area better than what is going on in another area, or happens to benefit what is one area more than another, then that federal budget is there to smooth those things out. Okay? So in the U.S., for instance, if Florida is experiencing a bigger economic crisis than Massachusetts, okay, at any point in time, they have to live with the same currency, the dollar, they have to live with the same interest rate policy that the Fed sets. But if things are worse in Florida, Floridians are going to, as opposed to last year when things were going better, going to be paying less taxes into the federal budget because things are going worse. They have less income. And relative to Florida, Massachusetts is going to be paying in more. And that the various mechanisms, unemployment insurance is one of them, through which money automatically flows then from those places that are doing better at this point in time to those places that are doing worse. And we don't question that. We might question taxes in general, but we don't question the principle that when things are worse in one part, more money should be flowing towards that part. We don't question that in terms of things like unemployment insurance, at least. And so the Europeans have the problem that they created the single currency, but they haven't created um, a solidarity fund to go with that. They have a very tiny little budget. People talk of the EU budget. It's tiny. It's puny, basically, compared to national budgets. And so they don't have that source of solidarity or that sort um, of a technical solution to the technical problems of the Eurozone. And so one of the things that I'm working on is uh, trying to explain that in a, um, in a book, trying to explain how that works. Um, and that kind of goes along with the other way forward, which not, is not very popular, I have to tell you, in, uh, in Europe, but which is to say, okay, well, we've done this. We don't really know how to undo it because people don't really know how to undo the euro, even the people who want to undo the euro. Um, we know that it would create a crisis to do that, okay? because we live in a world of international money markets and they would panic and they would pull out. Okay? So it would create a crisis. We don't really know how to undo it without creating the crisis. Um, and so the other way is to try to create that other peace, which would be a European budget or a Eurozone budget that is large enough that it could serve to smooth out those economic effects. Um, 
Now, having said all that, I think I've repeated a couple of times already, that's not the popular solution. Uh, it's the unpopular solution. And so what you see in particular in the countries that are not doing so well, I mean, not doing so badly, sorry, in the countries that are not doing as badly as other countries such as Greece or Spain or Portugal or Italy, those are the countries that are doing really badly right now. Uh, it's in the other countries that for the most part we see those radical right parties uh, gaining strength. We think of those radical right parties as anti-immigrant parties, as xenophobic parties, which they are. They've been around in Europe for actually for a long time. The xenophobia, this right-wing populism has been around, around for a long time. Um, but they have not had the success that they have now. And so my argument is that there is a connection between the way in which this problem of the Eurozone has emerged and the success of these far-right parties in what are essentially the richer states of, the, of Europe. So just to clarify, do you, do you also see a rise in nationalism then among, among the states? Yes, I think um, I would call it ethno-nationalism. Uh, there's a rise in ethno-nationalism uh, people want to go back to the entities to which they originally, from which they originally found solace, the sources of solidarity that we traditionally had in Europe, that had to do with national identity. Okay, so again, in the United States, of course, now we have a, a new turn in events in politics, and. Um, the anger has been turned towards immigrants, we've seen very, very recently. But we have a source of solidarity to the, ex to the extent that we don't question that we're all American. And so many Europeans want to go back to that sense of security, that belonging to a group uh, that they don't question gives you. And so those are the ethno-nationalities that exist in Europe, being German, being British, being... Um, French, in the case of Marine Le Pen, people seek security in that because they think that that's where the solidarity lies. Uh, but it takes, you know, it takes very ugly form. It's not, you've seen how long it's taken me to just try to explain this, why, isn't, why is the European economy doing so badly? It's taken me a while to explain that. So that's not an easy thing to explain politically, where you have to appeal to emotion. It's much easier to try to appeal to these, you know, I would call them basic instincts of let's stick with the group that we, uh, that we belong to. And that's, in most cases, the nation, and in some cases, the subnation. also. I mean, we've seen that the same sort of period of history We've seen also the rise of the popularity of even smaller communities of, of solidarity, which might be regional nationalities in, in some member states, such as northern Italy or a, a couple of the Spanish uh, regions, Catalonia. and the Basque country, that's been around for a long time, 
or Scotland, um, or, you know, Wallonia in the case of, of Belgium, which is also a very intense split right there. So I definitely see a return to nationalism, uh, ethno-nationalism, as I would call it, and um, ethno-nationalism has a very, very nasty history in, in Europe. So it is, it is something, in my view, um, to be afraid of. What role do you think the citizens play in, in that sort of ethno-nationalism? Do you see that happening more on a governance level, or do you see it filtering into attitudes of citizens? And how do you think that relates back to this idea of democracy and whether or not it's even present in Europe? Right. So I do think that it is... Does it come from the people? That's what you, I, I hear you sort of saying. Well, is this coming from elites or is this coming from the people? And I'll tell you one interesting fact, which is that um, I've, for a while, and I'm still working on questions of immigration in Europe. That's sort of my second major field of research right now. And it's been the case for a while that especially in the Northern European countries, and I'm not, not necessarily the Scandinavian countries, but the continental Northern European countries, the citizenry, if you ask them about immigration, were more negative than political elites. And so a lot of the new right-wing political elites uh, will tell you that, look, we're just, doing, we're just filling in the void, okay? We're just reflecting what people are saying about immigration. They don't want immigration. They don't want diversity. You know, that's, the, that's, that's a very prevalent view, okay? But the other thing is that um, even if that's the case, okay, uh, it's, it's actually very common uh, in general in life and in, in political research to find that if you frame a question and put it to people as, do you want different people from your own group to come here, that people often react as saying, no, why would I want different people to come here? Okay. So there, there are questions of how it is being framed. And I would say that this idea, in particular this idea, that... Uh, immigration or immigrants are responsible for economic problems. That is something that is very much constructed by political elites. Okay? It's easy to sell because it's, it's a simple story. You don't have it well because there are all these other people coming to take what's yours away. Whether it's your welfare benefits that you have to share with more people or you're not getting a good job because there are all these new other people taking away jobs. Those are easy stories to tell. Um, so I think that that part, that part of the framing of people's economic experiences is very much something that right-wing political parties have been working on, in the case of Europe, have been working on for many decades. And we see the, in this kind of long tail, what I call the long tail of the 2008 financial crisis, that slowly but surely they have been trying to, they've been able to 
put that message across more successfully. So people that have experienced an intense economic crisis, whether or not they're the ones that have experienced it worst, um, seem to be more susceptible to this narrative than, than before. If you were given the platform to reach the same people as those political elite, what would you rephrase the narrative to say? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I have Hillary Clinton's problem. Uh, I'm not a good politician. <laughs> I'm someone who, you know, really studies problems and sort of all their complexity. And it is, you know, you have a lot of things such as, I would say to them, look, it turns out that if you look at who believes the story more, who believes that their economic problems are due to foreigners coming and living here, for instance, it tends to be people who live in areas where there aren't very many foreigners. So clearly they're not the ones that are really experiencing the competition from foreigners if there, if there is such a thing. Okay. Um, and so what does that tell you? That's what I would tell people. You know, what does it say to you that the people who feel the most strongly this way are the ones that are in places where there aren't actually that many, um, I call them foreigners, immigrants, people coming from other parts, and sort of try to hope that the logic would, would seep through. That's what I would do. And there are other, you know, there are other such, there are other such inconsistencies that you can point to. Now, let me add something to that. It is the case that there is an emotional component to all of this that I haven't spoken about um, that is very hard to control, and that has to do with terrorist attacks. Okay, again, um, as much as people feel terrified. Uh, by terrorist attacks, and they are intended to terrify, so they that's why they're done. Uh, in this case, Islamic terrorist attacks mostly. It's still the case that very few people die from terrorist attacks compared to all kinds of other things that people do not obsess about. Okay, So you could use the same logic, but I think that there is an emotional element to the shock of a terrorist attack, which is it is intended to produce, uh, that's hard to fight. And so I think that that is one of the things that we're seeing, that there's this emotional element that feeds into, in addition to what I've already told you about the economic crisis, kind of sowing the grounds for this, that there's this phenomenon that really feeds into this dynamic of convincing people that their problems are due to either just many more people coming or, um, you know, these people, quote unquote, being bad, which is what I think right wing parties that focus on religion, that focus on Islam, are trying to do. They're not just saying these people are coming and are taking away what's yours. They're saying these people that are coming are bad and they want and they're after you. They're coming for you, kind of. Um, which is, of course, also what someone who is staging uh, an Islamic terrorist attack wants. They want precisely that that emotional dynamic that they are producing because on their front, and I often tell people. Um, 
you know, I come from a country that has a history of terrorist attacks. The, the objective of the terrorists isn't to convince the people that they're attacking. It's to convince someone else. It's to convince people that they claim to be representing that their way is more effective. And so their audience is really not the European public. They probably couldn't care less whether it's Marine Le Pen or someone else, but they like the idea that it will be Marine Le Pen who might govern France because that will toughen the position of the government in France, for instance, on Muslims, and then that in turn will help them feed their own story at home, where their real public is, that Europeans hate Muslims. And so that helps them in their scenario, in their, in their arena, which is elsewhere, really. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to... I think, I'm sure, <laughs> when I was coming in here, I'm sure I thought, I need to tell them something. <laughs> but I think you've gotten... I think you've gotten me on, on the main points. You know, I think this is going to sound maybe cold, but I think, you know, I'm both um, alarmed and uh, intrigued by the fact that this same kind of dynamic has spilled over into the United States. Uh, and at the same time, I'll say that I'm also heartened by the intensity of the protests that has emerged in in the United States. I don't I don't think we've seen we we've not had in any of the European countries a president like Donald Trump. Actually, Hungary might be the exception. Um, so I don't know what kind of protest that might elicit, but it is heartening. Now, it may be bad in the sense that the country is really, really, really divided, but I think the numbers of people who have responded to these, re these very early executive offers by the Trump administration is very impressive. Um, and so there's a sense, at least, that the sent that people, there are many, many people in the United States who recognize uh, the meanness or the falsity of saying, you know, it's Mexicans who are causing your problems. It's uh, Muslims as a group, the ones that are fleeing the places where this kind of violence is the most intense that somehow are your problem. It's, it's very heartening to see how many people recognize how false that logic is. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thank you very much for having me. been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.